people like him, people like Bruce, you know, they have such a life-enhancing connection with their fans. Um, and I think that's the key to the long-term popularity that stars like David and Bruce and Elton and Rod Stewart actually have. And uh, I think when a singer gets a song or songs with particular depth, they can go beyond entertaining and going to see them in concert becomes an experience. And with that um, comes this huge sense that they must have of responsibility that comes with being so popular. You know, their music inspires, their songwriting touches the soul, and their very presence makes the world a better place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. And have I told you lately I think I love you? Because today we are getting off the Bruce train and we're getting on a multicolored school bus and talking about one of my early musical crushes, David Cassidy. Joining me today is a writer and a podcaster who has a book about David Cassidy and his musical legacy. Uh, Louise Poynton, thank you for joining me. Good morning. Good morning, Jesse. It is a thrill to be here and see you. Yeah. So tell us a little about yourself. Or me. Okay. I am a journalist and author and as you say, um, host, well, creator and host of the David Cassidy Connections podcast. Um, I always wanted to be a journalist. There was never any doubt in my mind from about the age of nine. I wanted to be someone who could help other people to be the voice for the the little people um, who didn't have access to um, people in government um, to their f- favourite sports stars, their c- celebrities. Um, and I feel that as journalists, we have a duty of responsibility within our communities to help people. And there were occasions in the you know almost 50 years that I've been a journalist that we have succeeded and we have helped people and we have helped to make the community better. And I think people still rely heavily on having a local newspaper in their hands. We've got the, you know, we're swamped by social media these days, but I don't think anything replaces picking up a newspaper and actually reading at your leisure and absorbing the local news, especially from your local community in, in in which you live. And as I say, being a journalist is something I always wanted to do. Um, I think sometimes the music that we grow up with inspires us into our 
lives, into our careers and into the people we eventually become. And I always wanted to work on music newspapers. Over here we had Melody Maker, New Musical Express, um, titles that many of your listeners are probably familiar with. And that's where I saw my career going. I thought I want to be a music journalist. Um, during my training, my second love of sport started to take over and I started covering Speedway. Uh-huh. And I always wanted to be an Olympic athlete. That was my ultimate dream. I think we all have them when yes. we were growing up. Um, that never materialised. So they say if you can't do it, you write about it. Okay. So I wrote about sport, but I spent about 25 years as a news reporter, working my way up through the newsroom, chief reporter, assistant editor. Um, and then after some 20, 25 years of doing news, I got the golden opportunity to be a sports editor. And at that time, there were very few women who were holding that senior position. In Absolutely. Journalism. And I did that for another 20, 21 years, uh, mentoring and guiding young journalists on their path to success. And mm-hmm. one of your most recent podcasts, you were talking about leadership roles. Yes. Mentoring people. I found that really interesting because um, your guest was explaining that once people get promotion, um, either within a sports club situation, a sports team, or in a professional capacity, sometimes they're overwhelmed by what they're being presented with. How do you man manage a team? And I found that really interesting because from my from my experience, I had at one time for oh, 14, 15 years, a team of sports writers who were all men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I looked at it as though, well, I'm the best person to do the job. And that's, that's not wanting to sound arrogant, but I'd been there. I'd done that. I knew yes. the job was all about. And I could guide them on their future careers. You know, Louise, just recently, within three or four months ago, I had a very young um, agent. And what my gig is, I run it, I manage a contact center. Um, and so someone who I really like a lot and is also a very gifted young a- agent. Um, and she was talking to me and she says, you know, the floor um, sometimes is not very happy because you're telling them what to do. And it's sometimes, you know, it sounds like you're nagging at us and you don't even know how to do our job. And I said, well, I, I appreciate that. And I said, the reality is we're not doing a very good job. You know, as a as a department, we we are ha- we've struggled, and we're not doing very well. And I don't think people are doing their full potential. And the reality is, I wasn't hired to find someone on the. You know, uh, we do roadside assistance, so I wasn't hired to get people things. I was hired to make this team better. And so I appreciate your feedback, 
But the reality is I don't need to know how to do that job. I just need to know how to do mine. And I do think there is there is some strength that you can look at your team and go, I know what it's like to be, you know, up against a deadline trying to write a story, you know, uh, about uh, a match or, or some kind of event and trying to get it where it's good. And uh, I know most writers um, – rewriting is the true gig right it is uh i don't know if you've ever read um j michael stravinsky just put a book out about writing and it was fascinating because he did one paragraph and he showed the editing process he Mm -hmm. he wrote the paragraph you know he would write a paragraph and then he would go through underlining everything and then show you the final paragraph to show how much he processed. So, yeah, I can imagine that was an, a unique gig trying to, you know, manage. And also, you have to worry about the egos. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think I've often said, I think that one of the hardest things to do as a manager is manage people with a different work ethic than yours. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people that just don't care. I mean, they they care, but they don't like they're like, eh, I did the best I could versus the ones that go like I was when I was a support agent. Oh, my goodness. Our yesterday, our service level was in the toilet. That's horrible. What we got to improve today, even though that wasn't my job as an agent, I took it, you know, a lot of responsibility and I. I kind of going, I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan, right? I just, I love that series. And, you know, early in the series, Jamie, the, the scar, the star scorer was like, he didn't care if the team won or lost because all he knows his stats look good. He had played well versus the team. Um, If you were an an Olympic athlete, what would you have been? Middle distance runner. Okay. Mm. But what you're saying just now, and this applies um, to sport, to athletes. Yeah. um, I don't believe anyone has a weakness. And what I always endeavoured to do as their manager, as their mentor, was find their strength. And then if they found their strength and something they were really good at, within the scope of sports writing, then I was able to bring that strength to the fore and the readers would read their work and Mm -hmm. they would know that that's been written by an expert, someone who knows exactly what they're talking about. And that might be some people are really excellent at doing interviews. Others have a greater strength to write um, match reports. Yes. Do an in-depth analysis and all of my team had different strengths and they all complemented each other and it was wonderful to see the banter between them well i'm stuck on an intro here what do you guys think yeah what's the story Uh, well have you tried this and they go that's it that's what i was looking for yeah do um what's your favorite sport to cover well (laughs) i used to enjoy covering cricket Uh and rugby 
but my personal favourite sport to cover is motorsport. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of NASCAR, okay. car racing in the States. And I do love American football because I appreciate the mindset of people like Tom Brady and what he brings to the table. And I know people will criticise him, but if you want to look for someone who's going to motivate a team, you look at him and his work ethic and the way that he encourages the team during play, you won't find a better ambassador. You know, um, it is amazing that he's 44 as we record this (laughs) and um, is still, um, I guess you, maybe not the top of his game, but it sure feels like it. You know, it is... um, you know, he it like he took a drink from the fountain of youth. Um, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. In fact, that later this morning we're going to be talking. Uh, a bunch of my buddies will be doing a quick playoff preview podcast. Mm. Um, but the the fan of stories, the guy who loves reading would be let's have Tampa Bay and New England in the Super Bowl. You know, Brady against Belichick, just this, you know, it it it, it is like a movie script. Yeah. So, you know, because of that. Um, well, I always like to start at the beginning and uh talk to me about growing up and what kind of music did your family listen to? Were you a it obviously sounds like you guys were a fan of sports, but were you guys a fan of music? Oh, very much so. My dad believed that Bobby Darin was the best male singer of his generation. And my mum was an Elvis fan, Frank Sinatra. But we always had music in the house. And I was brought up with all the big Hollywood musicals, um, South Pacific, Guys and Dolls, you name it. I, I was there singing in the rain. And I just loved that pure escapism into this world of entertainment and um yeah music was always very very important um big fan of bobby darren myself i just my mom loved bobby darren and um just such a super entertainer that was taken much too young uh so very very nice um so as you were a teenager, what kind of music were you enjoying and what kind of as you went into, you know, high school, as we call it in the States and university? Yeah. Um, Ricky Nelson. OK. You know, there was a huge influence of American music on, on my life. I think the image that we had in the UK that America is a land of opportunities and all the biggest stars were coming out of the United States, influenced by the Beatles, obviously, and they in turn had been influenced by the blues, yes, you know, the likes of Chuck Berry, etc., um, in in the states. But I just love the top forty. Mm-hmm. I love the the charts, and I was so determined to be a music journalist that I could tell you when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, the top twenty. Fair enough, you know, the song, the artist, but I could tell you the record label number as well. 
I was a bit of an anorak and I knew everything about the top 20 and then, you know, from 20 to 40, I, I knew a, a little bit less, but I could roll those off for you. And I just loved happy music. But bubblegum right. bubble pop was always important to me, but really the, the roots were rock and roll. So you, when did you discover the Partridge family? And David specifically. Yeah. Well, I think at that age we were, we all were. You're trying to find your own identity. You're trying to find a star that you can relate to, someone who belongs to you. And I was always rather resentful that you had to like one of the monkeys and you had to like one of the Beatles. Where were the solo artists of our generation? And we didn't get the Partridge family here until 1971. So we we're about a year behind you. But a few months after it had started in the States and was just being this huge phenomena, um, there was a picture of David Cassidy in one of our teen magazines, biography about him. And it was like, I was done. I'd heard his voice and then you saw his face and for a young teenage girl at 13, um, as with millions around the world, that was it. Here he was. This was the voice we'd been waiting for. This was the star we'd been waiting for. Um, I can remember watching it. And in fact, I... Um, I don't know if my memory in which at 62 can be suspect, uh, but I do know that I had gotten one of those cassette recorders, you know, that was rectangular and you had to, you had to push the two buttons for the cassette tape. And I remember I taped an episode of the Partridge family, right? just next to the TV so I could listen to it again and again. So I always, um, like I remember watching it and, and loving the show, loving the different characters. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't, I, you know, Shirley Jones was so, you know, charismatic and sweet and, and David was uh, amazing. Um had a slight crush on Susan Day because I'm a normal human male, uh, you know, and so it was, and, and the music was fun. It, it was, it was the idea of, Hey, let's get a band together and play just really was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was top notch music. Yes. You know, it's only with hindsight that you look back and you understand that the musicians were the wrecking crew that on the earlier songs, it wasn't David's actual voice where he was lip syncing to the um, to to the uh, to the vocal arrangements. Um, yeah, John John uh, Tom Baylor um, had been one of the first um, musicians on the Partridge Family to actually sing David's vocals in the initial stages but of course he went on to write classics like she's out of my life by michael jackson mm. 
And in later years, you think, well, that's a song that David should have recorded. Yeah. Matured. Well, I do remember, and I was one of the, I, I don't think, I hope I wasn't alone, but I know I was in the very minority of, um, of a male buying, you know, 16 and other, you know, teen idol magazines, uh, reading, um, you know, Donny Osmond and David Cassidy and all these other, uh, I, because I was like you, I, I loved pop music. I was a top 40 guy. Um, I remember telling uh, one of my coworkers, one of my coworkers, gosh, one of my fellow students in high school that I don't listen to FM radio because I don't know any of the songs. You can't sing along. And I remember her going, that's the point, (laughs) you know? Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, so, um, I, but I remember reading that they quickly, the show producers were like, oh, this kid, David, has a voice. Yeah. Like he, he's got some chops. He actually can sing. You know, he was hired as an actor and then they realized. Um, I think it's interesting you mentioned the monkeys. Um, Michael Nesmith just passed as we're recording this. And um, I was lucky enough to see him and Mickey Dolenz in concert here in Dallas just um, last year, late last year. So it would be a couple of months before he died. And I, I was not surprised because he did not look in good health. He had a stool on stage. He, he walked in with a cane. Uh, but they told some wonderful stories about um, he came and said, hey, I've got a song I think that would be really good for us. And they said, well, it's not a monkey song. And he goes, well, I'm a monkey and I wrote it. How is it not a monkey song? And they go, oh, go away, Michael. And so he ended up giving it to some young aspiring singer named Linda Ronstadt. And, uh, you know, it did different drum. So that was, you know, um, so I know David, um, it seemed like had a passion for music and acting. Um, So what about the music spoke to you? What about his, that show spoke to you, Louise? And why has it been a passion for you for, um, you know, now over 40 years. Yeah. God, that's made me feel old. <laughs> yes. I know that feeling. Yeah. Well, I think it's because the Partridge family was a wholesome family show. Yes. Um, you've got a widowed mother and her five kids who sing songs and they go on tour and they're successful. And she's basically doing this with him to, with them to put them through college. Right. Um, David was the standout singer. Once they realized, as you said just now, that he could sing, the whole world just sat up and noticed. And I think it was his emotional delivery of the lyrics to those songs. They were lovely little romantic songs, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, etc., etc. But it was a way in which I suppose as an actor, he was able to interpret those lyrics 
and deliver them in such a way that every young girl thought he was singing them to him. Mm-hmm. And I know over the years that image that we were all sold of the all-American boy who's good to his mother and he washes his hair every day because he was the perfect image for a young girl. Sadly, I think that stayed with him all his life and he could never shirk that um, image away. And people always saw Keith Partridge. They didn't always see the immense talent of someone who was, I would say, a tortured genius who was never allowed to really be himself. Expand on that a little bit more. Well, when he went out on the road and started to tour, his shows were more like a Chicago production. The musical arrangements were so different to what you were expecting. And he commanded the stage. And, okay, he's wearing nudie suits, um, as Elvis did, you know, their skin-tight um jumpsuits, um, all their sparkly overalls. Right. What he was bringing to the stage was this rare explosion onto the music scene. And it was his platform to say, hey, there's more to me than I think I love you. And looking through the eyes of love, this is what I can do. And I think the arrangements and the production and his presentation on stage showed a man who wanted to be respected by other musicians, be recognised by the industry as I'm not just a teenage idol. Yeah. I'm a serious musician. And the fact that in you know, a few years later, you know, David Bowie wanted to work with him, Elton John wanted to record him, It'd be interesting to know if him and Bruce Springsteen, because they both hail from New Jersey, whether they had ever, if, if they would ever have been able to collaborate on something and what that might have achieved. Yeah. But, you know, David's songwriting, um, his, I mean, he wrote songs with, um, oh. It'll come to me in a second. That's okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I know yeah, that... Yeah, sorry, he wrote yeah. songs with, with Jerry Beckley from America. Right. He co-produced with Bruce Johnston of the Beach Boys. Yes. There was so much more to him that people either refused or couldn't look at. They just saw this cute, cute, good-looking chap and... It was difficult for them to comprehend he's actually got some talent there. And that's why I think um, he was very tortured over it because he could never be allowed to really come out and say, here I am. Yeah, and I do think, you know, the, the blessing and the curse of this, the Partridge family, and it gets you uh, worldwide recognition and opens up so many doors for you but it is also how do you how do you break out of that you're not um 
Keith Partridge, you know, you're David Cassidy. And um, the, you know, son of an, an amazing, you know, actor in his own right, uh, you know, his, his two stepbrothers both were, you know, very successful. So he came from a very powerful and talented family. But I do feel like I always cheered for him and was always happy when I saw him in a TV show like Police Story or David Cassie Undercover, right? That where you you wanted to see him I always wanted to see him being successful. I always kind of rooted for him. Um, and, you know, I never saw him perform live, uh, have no idea what kind of person he was in uh, person. I'm sure he's flawed like all of us. But I, as a as a fan of his, I always wanted him to do well. Hmm. Yeah. And I understand he was a lot more, I mean, the, in Europe, they tended to write, embrace his musicality more than the U.S. pop stars did, right? Pop records. Yeah. The Talk way, to me a little about that. Well, I think it's my only, it's only my take on it, but yeah. we didn't get the Partridge family, as I say, until 1971. And it was only on here for three months. Mm -hmm. And then it was taken off. Now, when it was taken off, he suddenly appeared on a record tour in early 1972. And his hair was long. He was wearing furry boots. He had a long yeah. coat. And he was the quintessential rock star. There was nothing about yeah. Partridge about him. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, the teenage magazines are full of all these pictures of him, which are, are wonderful to stick up on, on your bedroom wall and into scrapbooks, but you kind of felt there was more to him and he was able to express himself more when he was outside of the United States. Um, okay, he's playing to massive audiences in the States, he sold out Madison Square Garden, but when he came over to the UK, to Europe and to Australia. He's playing sports venues to 70, 80, 90, 100,000 crowds. And we're seeing David Cassidy, rock star. Yes. We're not seeing Keith Partridge. There's no Partridge family baggage with him. And most of his playlist was his covers of... Um, you know, Chicago, Beginnings, I'm a Man, <clears throat> drum solos, guitar solos. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is amazing. What's he doing? And I think he was allowed to be far more expressive as a rock musician than he was perhaps in the States where people may have expected, I think I love you. I want to hear all the Partridge Family songs. Yes. Well, like I know um, the second time um, I saw Bruce live, it was a small little venue um, at um, in a small venue, Verizon Theater, Grand Prairie. And it was just Bruce with his guitar and piano. It was a one of his uh, solo 
tours and you know three or four people in front of me got up and you could hear slightly inebriated maybe really drunk she's complaining to her date why isn't he playing porn in the usa you know and like you know going um were you able to ever see him perform live david yes yes i saw him in 1973 at the empire pool wembley yeah um his white city concert in 74 but then i didn't go to another concert for 28 years wow although i was still a fan yeah still knew what was going on still collected the memorabilia um other things took over my journalism career was so important to me and you know you get married and you have kids and but he's always there he was always mm -hmm. there um and the strange thing was that when i did see him after this huge gap as soon as he walked onto the stage I burst into tears because suddenly I was 13, 14 years old again. It was just that single moment, you know, by the time he'd finished his first or second song, I was fine. Yeah. yeah. It was good. It's like, oh, well, here he is now. And he's singing crooning ballads. Yes. Him. But he's still singing, uh, you know, some Partridge Family songs and Cherish and Could It Be Forever. People like him, people like Bruce, you know, they have such a life-enhancing connection with their fans. Um, and I think that's the key to the long-term popularity that stars like David and Bruce and Elton and Rod Stewart actually have. And uh, I think when a singer gets a song or songs with particular depth, they can go beyond entertaining and going to see them in concert becomes an experience and with that um comes this huge sense that they must have of responsibility that comes with being so popular you know their music inspires their songwriting touches the soul and their very presence makes the world a better place uh well said absolutely i agree um so Talk to me a little bit about the podcast and the book. How did you, you know, obviously you've established you've been a journalist for, you know, most of your adult life. So um, talk to me about why you decided to do a podcast and tell us about the podcast. And then let's talk about the book. Well, I'll turn it around the other way. Because okay. The book is uh, what came first, and okay. that's an idea I had back in 2014. Okay. Um, <laughs> excuse me a moment. Um, it came to me in just a, a light bulb moment. We all have them. Um, and I thought, there are so many wonderful stories of all us fans who have been to see David in concert. We've got perhaps a personal item of his um he helped so many through difficult times i thought wouldn't it be a good idea to have a look back through the memorabilia and find these interesting people um and put it all all together in a book um you can look on social media and you can see stories and then you scroll through them and you never see them again and i thought well, if i can collect interviews with fans um 
and track down people who perhaps shared a story 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, put them all into a book and then we've got a historical record of what one man meant to so many people. Um, I spent an awful lot of time researching because I didn't start this in earnest for a further two years. Um, I started to put it all together I tracked down fans and it was all coming together really well these wonderful hundreds and hundreds of stories that were coming my way and interviews I was doing with fans and then David got ill and then when he died at the end of 2017 the whole dynamics changed and I was probably 90% finished by that point and I stood back from it and I thought, I don't think I can do this. And everyone who had sent me stories originally said, you're still going to do this, aren't you? And there was such an overwhelming amount of love and respect that I thought, no, I'm going to have to do it. But I'm going to have to change it a little bit more. A lot of the fans said to me, and many of them had been friends for decades, um, mm -hmm. said, the story I sent you, I want to change it because I want to bring it up to date because now I understand why he meant so much to me. And for many of them, it was an emotional journey and they opened up to me in ways that they admitted they'd never even spoken to their family about because they were sharing something so personal that in my position and as a fellow fan, I was able to relate to it and I could understand. And it mattered because he mattered. Yeah. And at the same time of doing this, I thought, well, this needs to be a tribute as well. It needs to be a celebration of his life. So I reached out to people such as Neil Sadaka, Richie Furey, who David worked with uh, on his RCA albums, um, Ron Thalve, who used to be with Guns N' Roses. And this may surprise people, he became a guitarist because of David Cassidy. Nice. And then I've, I approached broadcasters around the world uh, people he'd worked with in the theatre and they all wanted to pay tribute to him and I reached out to fans again so that nobody would miss out on this opportunity and in came all these beautiful poems and fans explaining why after he died they had a tattoo because they wanted to feel close to him they wanted to show people how much he meant they shared with me their stories of their own addictions, with such brutal honesty of how they had addictions with alcohol or with food and how this one man, who to many was a teenage idol and wasn't considered outside of the fan base, anyone of any musical substance, how he changed their lives. He made them better people. He helped them overcome their addiction you know look powerful yeah that's very powerful uh the name of the book cherish david cassidy a legacy of love 
Um, it is available, um, you know, online at Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and every other venue. I will include a link to the book. You know, as you were talking about this, I was thinking that often when I'm reaching out to get guests, they will say, "Oh, Jesse, I don't have anything interesting to say," and 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 I always say that I believe every Bruce Springsteen fan has a story to tell. And it's my job, my calling to get as many of them on recorded as possible. And, and but often when I'm going to there, there are Facebook pages and other venues where other podcasters will look to be on other people. You know, we share guests, right? Like, oh, I'll be on your podcast, you'd be on my podcast. And I always talk about um if you're passionate about a musician or a band then you know come and join me and louise uh, i tell people a lot that i feel like um we are not unique in having this huge bruce springsteen fan base and, and how much his music means to me and i always say but i'm sure if you got a Grateful Dead fan or a Led Zeppelin fan or, you know, David Bowie fan, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra going back in, you know, Willie Nelson, that there are similar stories for every musician because music is important to our lives and music does, you know, the quote, the soundtrack of our lives. So I can imagine the different stories you've heard, you know, some funny, some inspiring, some sad, uh, but often triumphant, correct? Absolutely. Um, when I was wading through all these stories, and there's 200 in the book, but I could have filled it twice over. Yeah. Um, I was editing down submitted stories on occasions which would run to 10,000, 15,000 words. Wow. Just for one story. But they wanted to talk about him. Sure. This was their release. This was their therapy. And I feel very fortunate to have been in a position to be able to share their story. Now, obviously, those 10,000 stories didn't make the final cut. Yeah, they were edited down, you know, to you know, a few hundred words, maybe five hundred words, um, because I wanted everybody to have the opportunity to share their story, to share their experience. Um, the most interesting aspect of it all was the number of stories from male fans. They admit that they were too embarrassed when they were growing up at school to say, hey, I'm a David Cassidy fan. I love his music because you're supposed to like Led Zeppelin. You're yes. Supposed to like the Rolling Stones. Yeah, a teenage boy does not like David Cassidy music. I was that guy. Yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I didn't. I, that's exactly what. No, it wouldn't have been. You know, you can't say that you like David Cassidy or the Osmonds. God, oh, the Osmonds. You know, oh, you know, talk about corny. Yeah. Yeah. But what the the uh, the male fans 
did tell me was that they wanted to be him. He was their role model. Yes. And because of him, they became songwriters, actors, singers, musicians. Again, that's a powerful influence that one man can bring to a, to a generation. And the guys that I interviewed, they would sit there and they would get very emotional about it because for some, he was the male figure in their life that they that they didn't have yeah and they wanted to to be him because he opened up the possibility for them that anything is possible do you so because of these stories i take it that's why you decided you know i want to get some of these on um uh, recorded is that why you started doing some of the podcast it wasn't strange okay okay no. please tell me no that that wasn't the re that wasn't the reason behind it okay um, it was during the first lockdown here okay and my husband had been listening to an interview with a nascar driver and i said oh that sounds really interesting what station is that on because he does listen to international stations over the next mm -hmm. And uh, he said, oh, he said, it's a podcast. And I thought, oh, a podcast. Okay. Nobody's doing one about David. Right. To the fans. So the original I idea was to um, give people a little bit of education about who he is. So they'd leave the conversation with a little bit more knowledge about who was David Cassidy. Mm -hmm. I did go through my book and think, right, I can start with a couple of these fans because I know they've got some good stories and that's what I did. But then I put the um, I put some feelers out to reach people who were perhaps a little bit closer to him, whose stories I weren't I wasn't either able to get into the book or they weren't available to talk to me. So one of the uh, first people I interviewed was Ralph Sinensky, who broadcast, who um, produced some of the early episodes of The Partridge Family, and also Brian Forster, who was the second Chris and the, mm -hmm. the, the drummer. And the podcasts have now evolved into all my guests talking about their own life story, but also what the connection is to David. And that may be either through a fan or through a friend or through, or through yeah. being a, a musician or someone who never worked with him but is a musician and just wanted to show how much they respected him. Yeah. Um, the it – is, it is amazing that, you know, and I know it's cliche, right, but – the idea of, you know, we all have this huge influence whether we know it or not. Um, and so um, I, I love that you're doing this. So it's the David Cassidy Connections. Yes. Um, and it's available everywhere um, that you can find podcasts. Um, 
our mutual friend Sarah Hickman was on um, in October of last year uh, sharing this, and that's how we connected. She said, oh, I had such a good time. You should talk to Louise, Jesse. Um, what has surprised you about doing the podcast? Uh, how much he meant to so many. Mm -hmm. I'm. Some of them are so emotional. I interviewed an old school friend of his last week, John Provost, who was mm. Timmy Martin in the Lassie television series. Oh, okay. They went to high school together, and he got very emotional uh, about him. Um, Felix Cavallari, who wrote How Can I Be Sure?, he paid beautiful tribute to David um, about how he delivered his song and how good a musician he was, but he also highlighted on how underappreciated he was. And I think all these guests, and I've done more than 40 now, they're central to David's historical musical legacy because it's important we capture these conversations um, much the same way as the memories and tributes in Cherish are important. Um, locating and interviewing all these guests, as they say, mm -hmm. range from fans, friends, actors, musicians who worked with him. And they all want him to be remembered for what he gave beyond the teenage idol image. Yeah. And... The podcast is a place to remember him, but also for other people to learn and further the reach of explaining to people just how good he was and what they had been missing and take a listen to his solo albums, take a listen to The Higher They Climb, Home Is Where The Heart Is, Getting It In The Street, where Mick Ronson played lead guitar. Yeah. Have a listen, absorb it, and you'll begin to understand and appreciate that there was far more to him than the image everybody was sold. Yeah. Um, you know, he's more than just the guy's face on a lunchbox. And uh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's next for you, Louise? What's, what's, what, what are your future plans? <laughs> I'm trying to complete a 100-mile sportive cycling event. <laughs> oh wow! Yes, um, I've I've done I've done a few, um, but I've only kind of made about 85, 90 miles. Okay. I either had cramps set in, or the, uh, there was one that I was doing. We were nearly at, at the finish, and they closed the course because of a, a nasty accident. But my plan is when the weather improves to, to get more training at, outside and this summer complete my first 100. Well done. That, that, that's a good goal. That's exciting. <laughs> um, any final thoughts before we move to the Mary question? Um, I just, there's many parallels, you know, between David Cassidy and Bruce Springsteen. And I don't think many people probably be aware. You know, they both grew up in New Jersey. They both 
decided to pick up a guitar after seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And I think maybe both of them were in pursuit of something that was missing from their younger life. You know, they both had difficult relationships with their fathers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder if, like all of us, they have gone back to try and make sense of things and find an ex- an acceptance. You know, they were wrestling with their inner demons. How do you cope when you are so popular, when you are so loved, when you are so well-known across, across the world? Um, and those formative years, they build our identities. And I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to people like David and Bruce for helping us to become the people we are today. Well said, well said. All right, Louise, before I let you go, um, I um, first off, thank you so much for being here and talking about the book and the podcast and your uh, David uh, David Cassidy's legacy. Um, I end every episode with the Mary question. And if you have not listened to Set Listening Bruce before, because uh, you're a big fan of Louise and that you're checking it out, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher, recently retired from the Philadelphia area. And he teaches uh, at the time uh, honors English. And there would be, he spent two days, his seniors, and they would break apart the Bruce Springsteen song Thunder Road, looking at all the lyrics, talk about the imagery Bruce does, uh, talking about the themes of the uh, poem. And then at the end, he asked the question, does Mary get in the car? So Louise, that's your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Um, uh, I'm just going through through the lyrics here uh, in my head. I'm playing it back. (laughs) No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, that's a, uh, um, as I share, it's about 60, 40 split, 60% say yes, but about 40% say no. They oh. say that Mary is too afraid or she, he didn't convince her, you know? Uh, so yeah. Do you want to, any thoughts on why you said no? Well, it's, it, it's, as you said, I, I don't th- think it was convincing enough Good. But now, but now you've said all that, I'm going to go and play it and I'm going to listen again. <laughs> well, if you change your mind, call me. You just say, hey, Jesse, I want to record that again. Uh, <laughs> and that would be fine. Uh, all right. Uh, David Cassidy Connections is the podcast. Um, the um, Her book, uh, Cherish, is available um, everywhere. Books are available um, I, I am looking forward to reading it. Um, it has been cherished, David Cassidy. Uh, I have been, um, it is on my to-read list, and I, um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Louise, thank you so much for joining. Have a great weekend, and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Jesse. I've enjoyed it. Very nice. Good to meet you. Listeners, go check out the book. Remember, go get vaccinated. Let's all be good to each other because that's how we're going to get through this. And we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 